Almost 10 years ago, people thought the world was coming to an end. The Mayan calendar only went to December 2012, and so everyone had this sneaking suspicion that what was going to take place after this time frame was that everything was going to be destroyed. In fact, one of my favorite movies, and I'm going to tell you now, this is a terrible movie. It's awful. But one of my favorite movies was about that very year called 2012. And the whole movie details a man who, uh, who's estranged from his wife. He's got an ex-wife. He's got kids. Uh, he finds out through the grapevine that the world is, in fact, coming to the end, that the government knew about it, and they were hiding it. And now he needs to get his family out of L.A. into China, where they have underground bunkers or something, and they're sending people, or on ships, rather. I forget exactly. But the, the, the destruction and the CGI is just awful and wonderful all at the same time. I mean, one of the reasons I love apocalyptic movies is because you have, you have all of these unrealistic situations happening, right? You have people that are doing the impossible. In fact, the guy in the story, he's driving through L.A. as everything's crumbling about him. He's like driving through buildings with a limousine, like literally through a building. He goes through the window on one side, out the window on the other side. And, and then he, does, uh, he, he makes these awesome jumps in a limo, like the car's flying in the air like 30,000 feet. Just ridiculous kind of really fanciful activities. This is amazing. I love movies like this. Another one came out recently called Greenland, and it's about this comet that's coming to destroy the world. And it's, just, it's, it's wonderful. I love it because it highlights some of the absurdities about, about the way that we as, as creatures think about life. And one of those absurdities is that we can somehow escape the inevitable. Well, we can somehow escape the inevitable. And everybody really knows that we as human beings are at some point going to die. But in our minds, we think about this dystopian future where something catastrophic happens and you have something akin to the walking dead or trying to fight for survival and you can't take a shower anymore because there's no clean water and you have to grow your face beard out and all those things. There's cool stuff like that uh, points to this fact that we all have this sneaking suspicion that things are going to go bad someday. It's inevitable. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. And we all want to be in some ways prepared for it, at least imagine what it might be like. That's why movies like 2012 and, and uh, Greenland uh, make, uh, make money. People are excited to think about stuff like that. In fact, in this movie, 2012, what I noticed when the guy rolls up to the house to pick up his family, uh, I noticed that the family didn't go back inside the house to put their MacBooks in their backpack and to get their athleisure wear on so they could move around a little more easily when they're trying to juke the, juke the earthquake. They didn't have time to call some close friends, be like, hey, what's going on? Are we going to do a barbecue on Sunday? No, they, couldn't, they didn't have enough time to find their cats. Wasn't mad about that. <laughs> At this point, it's like, it's like they were either ready or they weren't, right? You're ready or you're not for the inevitable destruction that was coming. We picture it in movies, we think about it in some ways, and we talk about global warming and the natural catastrophes that are coming on the horizon. California, we always talk about earthquakes as, you know, the big ones coming. And again, what this points to is that all of us are kind of secretly suspicious that something really, really bad is going to happen. That inclination in us is something I think God has put in our hearts. Because here's the reality. There is something catastrophic to take place. There is destruction on the horizon. And the worst part about it is that no one really knows when. 
We don't know when it's going to happen. And so really, the only way to be ready is to always be ready, to always live in light of that pending destruction. The Bible calls this the day of the Lord. It's this concept in Scripture where God comes and sets all things right. He destroys the evildoer, he exalts the righteous, and he wields in his right hand the power to crush the nations because he's powerful. He's God. There's nothing that can stop him. He is so stinking powerful that all he has to do is just breathe and the enemies are obliterated. This is the day of the Lord. It's darkness. It's quaking. It's shaking. It is catastrophic and and epic proportions that no one could imagine or visualize, bigger and better than anything you would see in the movie screen. And what that ultimately is, is Jesus' return. See, Scripture calls Christians and non-Christians, really, to always live in light or in view of Jesus' return. To always live in view of that. We're to be battle-ready until that day comes. If you're a Christian, this is especially appropriate for you. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says Jesus is coming back, and it's not going to be like the first time. The first time he comes back, Jesus is rolling up. He's, He's meek, lowly, gentle. He's willing to eat with sinners. He's willing to show himself to be lowly in order to win them to himself. But when he comes back a second time, there's not going to be this meek and lowly Jesus throwing kids in the air. Jesus who comes back is angry at sin, and he will reap destruction. This is what we're going to talk about tonight in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Please turn with me there right now as we take a look at how Paul talks about the day of the Lord. And if you're using an ESV Bible, you'll notice that the italicized bold text above that is the day of the Lord. Now, last week we talked about the coming of the Lord for rapture. He raptures the church. The rapture is the first event on the calendar that initiates the coming day of the Lord. Now, I should also say it should be obvious already that the day of the Lord is not a singular day. It's more like a season, an era, a a time where God exercises and flexes his muscle to judge people. So again, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, the rapture is what initiates the coming day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And so you see it here. Currently, we're in the church age. You see that? That's us right now. So just for the sake of example here, this is CBC. We're somewhere in this maybe, or maybe even closer to this. We don't know. But when Jesus comes to catch his people for the rapture, that initiates the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, the day of the destruction, lasts as long as Jesus needs it to in order to establish his millennial kingdom. Jesus comes back, destroys the bad guys, and there's a bit of ambiguity about how this exactly unfolds in the future. But rest assured, the way that he does this will be final. It will be intentional. There will be bloody, uh, there will be bloodstains on his gown, his whatever he's wearing, whatever Jesus wears, I don't know at this point, but he will have blood on his gown from stamping out the bad guys. Millennial kingdom, he has a thousand years of peace on earth. He initiates and establishes peace. He rules and reigns in perfection. But at the end of this time frame, there's going to be a battle here in this area called the Battle of Armageddon. The bad guys are going to try to say, you know, we're going to give it one last shot. Yeah, Jesus crushed us, but we're going to try one more time to beat him and see if it works because the first time didn't work out so well, but we're tenacious. We're going to keep going at it. So the bad guys rise up again, and of course, Jesus doesn't have to work too hard. He destroys them once and for all. You have the great white throne judgment where Jesus judges unbelievers, and he issues rewards for believers, and now you have the eternal state where all things now are forever and always submitted to the rulership of King Jesus. We're glorified in our bodies. There's a new heavens and a new earth. Everything you know, what it used to be, is going to have faint recollection. Like it's it's looking like a, uh, the earth as you know it will be like looking at a shadow versus the substance. 
It'll be like, oh, that kind of looks familiar to me, but everything here is going to be far better because there will be no more sin. There will be no more shame. There will be no more guilt. All that is to come. This is where the rapture initiates the day of the Lord. And here's how Paul talks about it. As you think about that coming future, Paul has some words for you about how you as a Christian should think about this. Okay, last week we said it's coming quickly. We don't know when. It's imminent. It could happen any moment. It could happen in the middle of this sentence. If that's the case, we should always be ready. Well, he continues on this, and he beats this drum a little more. Read it with me here. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Well, because they know. He says, look, you, you, no one needs to tell you guys about the end times, the end of the world. No one needs to remind you about what's coming in the future. He says, verse 2, 4, you yourselves are fully aware. You know that the day of the Lord, there it is again, the day of the Lord, will come like a thief in the night. Now, of course, you know thieves don't come with warning. They don't tell you that they're going to come in advance. They come in secret. They come quickly. They come in stealth. And so the idea here is surprise. Verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so what you see here in verse 3 is that everyone's looking around saying things are pretty good. Things are going really well. Times are, times are, are pretty great, all things considered. But even though people are saying things are good, God says, you know what, I'm going to stop this show and there's going to be sudden destruction. It's going to be cataclysmic. And it's going to come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Young men, if you want to ask one of our ladies who recently had a baby, they'll tell you all about that. Or even some of our moms who've had several babies, my wife included, they come quick and they come hard and they come fast. There are sometimes these fake labor pains called Braxton Hicks. They come upon the woman and they feel like contraction. That's kind of like, well, maybe, maybe not. They're, they're hurting, but I'm not so sure. Those Braxton Hicks happen to us as well. We see evidences in our world about things that look like, oh, that's pretty bad. You know, the, the government is now trying to install what it seems to be a digital currency. It seems like uh, our president is going in a direction that's not good for America. And they're looking at a one world government now. And there's a possibility for this and that and all these. There's rumblings. Those could be Braxton Hicks. They could be fake. Nevertheless, Paul says, when that time happens, it's going to be sudden and it's going to be certain. It will come upon them quickly and it will also be final. There will not be a second chance. There will not be a, hey, I, I died. Jesus, can I have a second chance? I heard about you in youth group. I really wanted to become a Christian, but I just chose not to because it wasn't cool at the time. Can we be friends anyway? It's not like that. Sudden and certain. That's how it's going to be in the last day, coming upon them like labor pains, and they will not escape. I want to point to your attention to a couple quick things before I move on from this. I want you to see here who his audience is. Okay, notice again, look at verse 1. Uh, there's no need to have to, to remind you about these things. You don't need to know that. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon... Notice the shift. Sudden destruction is going to come upon them. He's not saying you, he's saying them. Why can he say that? No, let's see. They will not escape. He shifts from talking to the Thessalonians to talking about the unbelievers. Why? Well, because the Thessalonians won't be there. 
they will be raptured. The church will have been taken from the earth at this point. So he's saying, look, you don't have to worry about this. You're, you're fully aware that it's going to come quickly and suddenly and that the Lord's going to come in an un, unexpected and perhaps unpredictable time frame. And yet uh, the destruction and the lack of escape is for those people who have refused to bow the knee. Excuse me, I'm getting really spitty up here. Uh, not bow the knee to Jesus. I get excited. I get really, sal- I start salivating. That's probably TMI. Let's just move on. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, as Christians, I'm talking to Christians right now, as Christians, you need to see this as like, man, that's, that's terrifying. That's something I don't want to have to live through. And praise God, you don't. But then what does that mean for everyone else in this room, in your schools, and in your neighborhood who doesn't know this? What does that mean for them? And I get it, guys. It's super hard. When we start talking about evangelism and sharing your faith and bearing your testimony to people, like, I get it. That's hard. It's awkward. It's weird. They look at you funny. They ostracize you. So let me give you a low bar, okay? I want to give you something to do today, tonight even, that you can do and feel confident, like, okay, I can obey that. I can start there. Point number one, let's at least commit to pray for opportunities. Let's pray that God would awaken within us a desire a motivation to talk to people about Christ, to have an open door, to have some low-hanging fruit, to have opportunities to say something to somebody about someone. See, you can't be content with having, only having your ticket stamped. I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, and that means I'm good to go, and I don't really care much if you burn in hell because you're really nice, you're really handsome, you're really beautiful, and I don't want to offend you. Of course, that's, it sounds so selfish when we verbalize it that way, but that's essentially what we do when we fail to open our mouths for people that we should know, that we should care about. Now, let me just make this one quick note here, guys. I know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man, I'm a, I'm a sinner too, saved by grace. I understand. There are things that I know I should care more about that I don't. And you can, in your own, in your own secret head right now, the, the secrets of your heart, you can acknowledge you don't care enough about your friends either. You don't care enough about your family. You don't care enough about the lost. They don't move you to tears. They don't cause you to say, man, that's really, I I love them so much. I want to see them saved. I don't know. Maybe between you and the Lord, have you ever shed a tear over a sinner who's lost in their sin? Have you cared enough to even be moved with emotion to care about a lost person? Maybe you have, and if you have, praise God. But if you haven't, I don't want to add guilt to your conscience. What I do want to say is, young person, beg the Lord for those emotions. Pray for that. And do not let him go until he gives you that. I'm saying pray for opportunities, but pray that he move you and motivate you to the core to say, help me, God, to care for my family, to care for my friends, and to care for them more than just simple platitudes and simply saying, you're my friend, you make me feel good, I like you. But no, caring for their soul in a way that just moves you, propels you, and compels you. We should pray for those opportunities because reality is the day of the Lord begins suddenly. We've seen this. I, just, I explained this to you. It's going to happen quick. There's no warning. When a thief breaks into your house, he doesn't text you and say, hey, does Sunday at 2 a.m. work for you? Would that be a good time for me to steal things from you? No one knows when it's going to happen. That means we always have to be ready. And for the unbeliever, the sad thing is that the unbeliever is going to be taken off guard entirely for you because you come to a church like Compass, you have some forewarning. You know what's going to happen. But for them, it's a sudden event that comes upon them. Jesus says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus, as fully man and fully God, in his humanity did not know the day or the hour. 
He says again to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, he said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so you see repeated refrains in Scripture to say, look, I'm not going to tell you when. Be ready always. I'm not going to tell you when it's coming, but you know it's coming. Be ready. Again, for you, Christian, you need to pray that you feel that urgency. Again, if you're a believer, you put your hope in Christ, fantastic. But you need to feel the urgency for the unbelievers in your life. Pray that you feel that on their behalf. So many people, and maybe even in this room, put it off saying, you know what, I, I believe it, I know it's true, but I just can't do it right now. I'm not ready to do that. I'm not ready to give my life over to Christ because I just, I like my sin. I like what I'm doing. I don't want to change my life. That's so costly, I can't do that. I'll repent later. I know it's true. I believe it. I know the power of the word of God. I feel it. The spirit convicts me when, it, when, it's, when it's unpacked, but I can't do that right now because I just, I got other things going on. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. I'll do it later. Those simple words are profoundly foolish because you don't know if you have a later. You just don't know. None of us do. It is by God's grace that you breathe in the oxygen that we have around us. It is by God's grace that your heart beats. It is by God's grace that your eyes still see, your ears still hear, your mind still works. That's all God's grace. That's a gift that you should not take for granted because life is a mist. It's a vapor, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, James 4.14 says. The Bible makes clear that all of our lives, whether we live a long and healthy 80, 90, 100 years, is still quick. It's a blink of an eye, a few hand breaths. I'll do it later are some of the worst words you can utter in relationship to your salvation with Christ. If you're an unbeliever tonight, I would encourage you, let tonight be the night because the day of the Lord happens suddenly. On top of that, Christian, let me also encourage you to recognize that the day of the Lord ends decisively. There is no plea deal. There's no bargain. There's no, Lord, what if you just give me five more minutes and then I'll repent before this happens? There is no second chance. There is no reincarnated state. There is no, let's figure this out later. Once it starts, it ends decisively. There is a no contest. There is a no contest here. It's a TKO. Jesus will crush the unbeliever. Labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman happen when they happen. And it's not like a mom could say, well, hold on a second, honey. I, I, I want to finish this episode of The Winter Soldier. And if you just wait a little bit, baby comes and baby comes. Jesus comes when Jesus comes. There is no second chance. You need to be prepared to go before it happens. In the same way that, you know, when you're getting ready to have a baby, I know this is way too early for most of you, but when you're getting ready to have a baby, that go bag needs to be ready before due date. When you start having contractions, ladies, you shouldn't say, should we get a go bag ready? Is now a good time? No, too late. Let's go to the hospital. Have the go bag ready. Scripture says that they will experience, in verse 3, sudden destruction, and they will not escape. That word destruction appears in 2 Thessalonians. Here's, where it's, here's the context. Jesus comes in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Again, the gospel is a command. Repent and believe. For those who don't obey that gospel, they will suffer the punishment of, there's the word, eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul wants to make absolutely certain here that destruction is not a happy thing. 
This is not, let's go to hell and let's have a, a drink together. Let's go to hell and let's have a rave and experience all these wonderful psychedelic drugs. This is not, let's go to hell and experience all these awesome parties. This is eternal destruction. This is an, uh, an annihilation that is not something that ends. This is something painful. This is something inflicted by Jesus himself. Notice that, right? He comes in flaming fire. He's the one inflicting vengeance on his enemies. He defines his enemies as those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. The gospel, by, uh, the gospel is an invitation, yes, but it's a commanding invitation. The king commands you to repent and believe in who he is. Christian, do you feel that still for the lost? Do you recognize that, the, that God is still opposed to the lost and to the sinner? He hates sin. And in many respects, Scripture can even lead us to believe that God hates when sinners do wicked things to the point where he can even say in Psalm 5, I hate the wicked. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Yes, he loves the world. He loves in that he offers opportunity for the lost to be made right. You should pray for opportunities because for the, for the unbeliever, the day of the Lord begins suddenly and it ends decisively. There are no second chances. Jesus wins. The bad guy loses. And FYI, all of us are the bad guys. None of us are good. There's only one who is good, and that's Jesus. And he graciously offers us salvation. Christian, pray for opportunities. And if, if that's even too much for you, pray to care. Pray to care. Pray that God would stir you up to care more. We ought to care. Day of the Lord ought to motivate us to get about the work of evangelism, starting with and building a foundation of prayer. But it also has implications for how we live. Day of the Lord ought to be something that stirs us and motivates us to do something, to act a certain way. And here's what the next four verses talk about. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Like, you don't have to be surprised when, when the rapture comes. Like, that's, that's coming for you, and you're going to be stolen up with the Lord. That's going to be a good thing. You don't need to be surprised about that. I'm telling you now, it's coming. Be ready for that. He says, for you are all children of light. You're children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Of course, what he's saying here is not that he literally wants you to stay awake all day and all night. He's not saying that. He's saying, look, you ought to be spiritually alert all the time. You belong to a way of life that is bright and shining. It is light. It is righteousness. You ought to live in that righteousness because you are righteous in Christ. Don't act like the people who walk in darkness. They walk in darkness. They have dark buildings. They're, 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 the windows of seedy places are all boarded up and there's no light that comes in. They walk in darkness. They live in darkness. It refers to wickedness. So that's not you guys though. Verse six, let us not sleep. Don't slumber. Don't be in your spiritual malaise. Be alert and awake and ready for the king. He says, for those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. Debauchery happens at, at night. But he says, but since we belong to the day, we belong to righteousness and light and truth, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He says, the Christian's life is fundamentally, diametrically opposed, opposed to the, the nightlife. We are children of the light. Let us walk as children of the light. Paul is telling us, be ready, be on your guard, be prepared. It reminded me of uh, the show Doomsday Preppers. 
National Geographic used to, 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 I mean, they did this show for several seasons, I think three or four seasons. Uh, and of course, everybody made fun of these guys, you know, these whack jobs who set up bunkers underneath their house and they stockpiled all these things that really no one would ever need. One of their websites, they, can, they literally sell you a 12-month emergency food supply. And you can buy stuff like this. I mean, they do that for the low price of $7,500. I mean, they did stuff like this and, and, and the whole show revolved around kind of watching these odd people prepare for this coming apocalypse that really no one, like, yeah, we'll watch a movie about it, but when it comes down to it, I don't, I don't want to prepare for that. And everybody liked to poke fun of them until last year hit. And then they started writing articles like, oh, okay, we should all be preppers after all. These guys are right. Oh, we're the nutcases. Uh, we should not have mocked them. We should actually do some of the same things. It's wise and prudent. And, and, and the preppers' names started to go mainstream, and people started giving them more attention. And of course, everyone especially felt it when you went to Target or Costco and you couldn't find toilet paper. Oh, man, what am I going to do? People started looking at trees and getting creative and saying, okay, what can we use? It got real strange, guys, last year. <laughs> got real uncomfortable for everybody. Saw an old lady pushing a cart of toilet paper, and I got real greedy for a second. I thought, man, just give me a couple rolls just to make sure we're good, lady. We're past that, praise God, past that. Don't have to live that life anymore. But people got weird, right? Uh, this whole idea of there's a pandemic, we don't know what's gonna happen to us, and suddenly these preppers that everyone made fun of, they had like walls of toilet paper all over, and they had water and canned goods. They had like a, a, a water purifier so they can get like sewage and make, make it drinkable. I mean, it was just like, okay, you guys win. Yes, we're, we're, the, we're the idiots. You guys win. You, you had this wartime mentality that made sure that you were always prepared. Now, there's, something in this for, there's something in that for us to learn. I'm not going to tell you to start stockpiling toilet paper. Please don't. We all need some. But I can tell you, point number two, you ought to actively maintain a wartime mentality. That's something we can take from the preppers that's helpful. A wartime mentality. That's something that we should cultivate. It is this idea, we live in peacetime, right? We're not in this war. We're not doing World War III right now, and hopefully that never happens. But we're in peacetime, which means we can live in peacetime. This is when you can get a little chunkier. You can, you know, start buying a, a luxury items. But wartime mentality is when you, you tighten your belt. You stop eating as much. You start scrimping and saving. I heard about this. I haven't lived through a war myself. But in generations past, people that would have to live through the realities of warfare would begin to live differently. They would save more money. They would spend less money. They would be more thrifty in the clothing that they spent money on. They'd be more thrifty in, in the clothing that they had. They wouldn't just throw it away because they weren't, they weren't sure what was going to happen. They weren't sure if there's going to be clothing to purchase afterward. They would can their own food. They'd grow food in the backyard. They might start doing things like selling uh, homemade goods because they wanted to be sure they were providing for their family be, because of the unknown and uncertain future ahead of them. It's a wartime mentality. I'm not telling you to do that. But to go back to the word I made up last week, the term spiritual awareness, we ought to bring that kind of mentality to our spiritual alertness. Here's what that looks like for us. A wartime mentality, first of all, is mentally ready. It is a mental readiness. And yes, that's a piece of toilet paper there. Thought that was cute. Thought you'd appreciate that. Mentally ready. You should always be aware of the inevitable return of King Jesus. The day of the Lord is coming. And remember, the kickoff to that event is the rapture. And that can happen at any moment. Mental alertness means that we're always prepared that Jesus can come back at any moment. That ought to change the way that we interact with the world around us. In fact, I would even say that changes a lot of things, but 
in particular, if you knew, and I asked this question last week in your small groups, if you knew that Jesus was coming back in a week, what would change about your life? I think one of the things that I would answer to that question I made up would be, like, I don't want to keep short accounts with my relationships. If I had a strained relationship with anybody, I would want to bury the hatchet. I would want to reconcile and make sure that there was no bad blood between me and anybody else because I wouldn't want to live knowing Jesus is coming back and I'm holding this grudge against somebody for something that they said or did to me and I'm offended. Who cares? Keep short accounts. Mental alertness means I'm not going to be holding things against people in light of eternity. Does this ultimately matter in light of eternity? Probably not. I can let it go. Mental readiness means I want to enjoy the life that God has given me as he gives it. Look, you guys are constantly living in a state of the future, right? In high school, you're always looking to the future. When I have enough money to have my own house, so I can buy my own console, buy my own internet, and get the fastest speed available, and get the best headset, and the best chair, and I'll, you know, I'll do all these things, you're looking to the future. When I get married, and I have my own kids, and I have my own dog, and I have my own cats, and, uh, or when I go to this college that I really want to go, and those are great. You should plan. But what that does is steal your present attention from the good things you have right now. Mental readiness takes joy in what God has given you very presently, like this exact moment. You just heard our True North worship team lead you in worship, and they sound awesome. We have talented, hardworking musicians and vocalists up here. Like, I enjoy this. It's sweet. Savor that. Mental readiness means I'm enjoying the good things that God has given me because I know they could quickly stop because I die, because Jesus comes back. I'm going to have you go through this text in your small groups, Matthew 25. Jesus talks about the, the parable of the foolish virgins and the wise virgins. The foolish virgins, the ladies who are betrothed to this king, uh, are those who aren't prepared for his arrival. But the wise virgins are those who have their lamps ready. He shows up, and they're like, we're ready to go. He picks them up, and he takes them. They're ready to go, and Jesus commends them. But then he says to us, he says, watch therefore, for you, neither, for you know neither the day nor the hour of the king's return. You should be ready. Wartime mentality means that we're mentally ready, but we're also culturally distinct. I love this. I love this because here, here's what Paul says in verse, uh, in verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. He says, for you are all children of light. Pause. You are all children of light. You are all children of light. Okay, I'm highlighting something that I, I'm hoping that you see. Paul is not saying you should be children of light. He's not saying you should walk in light, and he's going to get to that in a second. He's saying you are. Your identity is not darkness. You are a child of light. This is who you are now purchased by Christ to be. Therefore, be that. Be distinct. Live like a child of the light. He, he forged, and this is important, okay? Pay attention. Here's the, here's the important. He highlights identity and then, as a natural outgrowth of identity, then activity. You're on the football team, and therefore you attend practice. You don't go to the practice in the hopes that you get on the football team, right? You're, you're given a role on the team before you, you get the responsibility to be part of the, the workouts and the drills and memorizing plays. You're on the team, and then you do those things. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. You're given a reality where you're placed into Christ, and then you do what Christ commands. To try to do what Christ commands without being on the team is backward, wrong, and sinful. You see, because we are made children of light by Christ, and then we walk that out. We live that out. We obey from the place of our salvation. We don't obey in order to gain salvation. 
Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That ought to affect you. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If that's true about you, that ought to show in the kind of culture that you engage in. You're going to look different. You're going to have uh, an accent, so to speak. You're not going to use the same words that your peers do. You're not going to listen to the same music your peers do. You're not going to do the same things that a world that lives in darkness does. You're going to be different. I'm like a fourth, fifth generation Mexican-American. So you know by now, I don't speak Spanish, but I have family that does. And a few occasions in my life, I, I got further into Mexican culture that I didn't realize was part of my culture. One of those cultural moments that is very distinctly Mexican is the, or, uh, Latin, the quinceañera. The quinceañera is a sweet 15, basically. You guys do sweet 16s like we used to anyway. Uh, the quinceañera is where everybody dresses up really fancy and they treat the, the young lady, the, the one who's turning 15, quince, uh, the quince, uh, okay, I'll leave it to Elvis. The quinceañera, the turning 15. Um, everyone celebrates this young lady, and it's like, oh, you're turning 15, you're a woman now. And, and so, and then <laughs> one that I was, okay, between us, all right? I was invited to a quinceañera, and I went to the first gathering. It's an honor to be part of the kingdom. It's an honor. You should, if anyone ever invites you to that, you should be, I'm, I'm, thank you for making me part of it. So I was invited to this. And part, I didn't realize this when I went, part of being of the, the, the part of the, I don't know what they call it. It's like, a, it's like a bridal party, but it's not, she's not getting married. It's just the, the quinceanera party, the people that are the main attraction. You dress up really fancy. And then there's like these coordinated dances that you're supposed to do. And I'm like, I can't dance like that. Like, it was, it was a, I mean, it was fine. It's culturally appropriate. I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect, probably. But I'm like, I, I just don't want to do that. So I just, I, Lord, forgive me. I, I told the girl, I can't do it. I got this other thing going this weekend. I, I rejected that invitation because I did not want to do the dancing. But having said all that, please don't think poorly of me. <laughs> that was BC. Uh, having said all that, the quinceañera is distinct to the Mexican culture. And it's really cool. The Latin culture, I suppose. Maybe there's others they do. That's part of what our culture is. And that's very culturally appropriate. You, you could tell a Mexican family in part because they celebrate the quinceañera. On top of that, they're never on time. That's another mark of Hispanic culture. Never on time. Uh, I have family members to this day. We can't get on the same page because like I show up at one, you show up at four. We can't do this. It's not going to work. Distinct. Culturally distinct. Paul calls us as Christians to live culturally distinct in order to showcase the fact that we don't belong to this world. We are light. They are darkness. Light ought to be evident and obvious. Ought to be obvious. Culturally distinct. That's what you see in verse 5. Verse 6 through 8 says this. So then let us not sleep. Let's not get lazy um, as others do, but let us keep awake. Stay sober-minded. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, again, there's our identity. Since we're daytime people, as a result of our identity, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of, take a look, here's the, the three virtues that always come together, right? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and hope. There's that triad that's always there in Pauline scripture, faith, hope, and love. In this case, Paul kind of 
enters into two analogies here. He's using the analogy of light and, not, uh, light and uh, day and night. And he's also using the analogy of armor. You know, and in his mind, as he thinks about being mentally and spiritually alert, he can't help but think of a soldier, a soldier who's wearing a breastplate and he's got a helmet, minimal attire, but he's guarding the most valuable or the most uh, rather vulnerable parts of his body, his head and his chest, his heart and his brain. So he says, you, Christian, ought to have your most vulnerable parts covered by these virtues that Christ has given us. And so a wartime mentality includes being mentally ready, culturally distinct, and spiritually vigilant. There is an air about the way that we go about the Christian life that shows that we are always alert to spiritual realities. We're not spiritually drunk. We're, we're spiritually alert. We're spiritually caffeinated, we might say, because we belong to the day. And that sobriety works itself out in faith, hope, and love. Protective, which keeps us working toward the ultimate end, the consummation, or waiting our king. Spiritual alertness means that we can't allow ourselves to have off days. This is hard, because I think Paul is calling us as Christians, this is your identity in Christ. You are a believer. You've been set apart since the foundation of the world. Therefore, walk it out every single day you wake up. It's like if, if you knew that you were being, if you were being enlisted to the Marines, uh, you might every day wake up and do like 100 sit-ups. You might try to get some push-ups going on. You might start running a couple miles just to make sure that you're as physically fit as possible to endure the crucible of their training. Christians are, are not very different. Of course, it's not physical, but spiritual. We endure spiritual disciplines and spiritual training because we want to stay spiritually alert at all times. Here's what that might look like. You meet a friend at school. You realize, oh, she's a Catholic. And you start asking yourself, I wonder if she's right with the Lord. And so you start praying for her, and you start realizing, man, I notice that she tends to have issues with, let's do obvious here, anxiety and depression, and she doesn't seem to deal with it by turning to the Lord, but she turns to fill-in-the-blank substance. I am spiritually alert enough to pray specifically for those things and to ask on, Lord, open up a door for me. Please open up a door so that I can talk to her. Spiritual alertness also says, as I go about my day, I'm not just thinking about the next game I want to play, the next song I want to listen to, but I'm thinking in categories that are biblical. What does scripture have to say about how I respond to this person who just said something totally stupid? I'm totally annoyed by this girl next to me in our small group. How do I respond to that biblically? Lord, put a restraint on my soul so that I do what you want me to do and not as I want to do. I'm spiritually alert to those realities. In fact, spiritual alertness also suggests that you are fully aware that the biggest sinner in the room is not those guys. You are. I am. I mean, hopefully it's not false humility, but you know you better than anybody. And if you know you better than anybody, you should also know that you're a big sinner. You sin in a variety of ways. You know your emotions. You know your actions. You know more, more dirt about you than anyone else in this room. Therefore, that should give you a place of humility and an awareness that you desperately need Jesus. That's spiritual alertness. That's spiritual sensitivity. I need you, Lord. I'm aware of that. Please keep me and guard me from foolish pride and stupidity. Mentally ready, culturally distinct, spiritually vigilant. He closes out with this last encouragement, this charge. As I said, what I'm asking you to do, and I think what Paul's telling us to do, is hard to do. How do we fuel our tank to keep pushing hard when the going gets tough? This last part is awesome. Follow with me here. Verses 9 through 11, he says this. He says, for, because, live this way, do these things, because God has not destined us for wrath. Because you've been saved. 
You've been protected. God is not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, died for us, so that whether we are alive or dead, awake or asleep, we might live with him. This, of course, is the Christian's ultimate desire to be with Christ, to know Christ, to love Christ, to live with Christ. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You're doing it, Thessalonians, go even harder. Keep going at that. Don't stop. Don't stop until the bell rings. Don't stop until you cross the finish line. Don't stop until Jesus returns or you die, whichever comes first. Did you notice what he did there, though? He went right back to the gospel. He said, live this way. Be honorable. Live in the light. Do the things you should do. Care about things that you should care about. Why? Because of what Jesus did for you. That's why. That's ultimately the Christian's anchor for everything we do. When we serve others, it ought to come from a place of Jesus loves me. He died for me. I want to serve others because of that. If Jesus can die for me, I can live for others. We need to go back over and over again and rehearse the truth of the gospel to ourselves. I read a book recently called Chatter. It's by this guy named Ethan Cross. He's an experimental psychologist and a neuroscientist. It's the kind of stuff that I enjoy reading. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. But he studied the inner dialogue that takes place. I'm pointing to my heart, but I guess in your head. You start thinking stuff. And he says, chatter really is that negative talk, self-talk, that kind of goes in disaster mode. It, uh, it worries, it ruminates, it catastrophizes. He says when that happens and it's looped, he calls that chatter. And he says one of the best things that you can do to prevent chatter from taking you, uh, negative self-talk, from taking you to this place of uh, joy to, to terror, he says you need to interrupt your negative self-talk with positive self-talk. That's nothing new. That's been said a long time for, in, in many different ways. But he says you need to talk to yourself with, in the right way. Talk to yourself in the right way. That's one of his major points in the book. I would say, okay, great. I feel like Scripture's already kind of given us much of that categorical thought. And so putting that together, I think he's right about something, though. We have a tendency to catastrophize, to worry, to be frustrated and concerned about things that we don't need to be. What we need to do, instead of letting ourselves talk to ourselves about things that are unhelpful and unwise and untrue, instead, we ought to rehearse gospel truths in order to increase our Sticktuitiveness, our grittiness, our ability to endure during difficult times. Rehearse gospel truths to increase grit. I'm tempted to use a word, and I'm going to use it, but it, it has baggage, okay? It has baggage. So I need to make sure that you understand what I mean when I say this. Christians can practice affirmations. Not the way that most of you might be thinking about it, though. Paul was not affirming himself. He was not practicing affirmations. When he said, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Praise God, that's awesome. It's one of the best verses in the whole Bible. But he's not practicing affirmations. What Paul is doing is preaching the truth to himself. He's talking about what is foundationally and objectively true about him. I have been crucified with Christ. He's not affirming himself and saying, Paul, you're going to have a great attitude today. You are wealthy. You are wise. And gosh darn it, people like you. He's not doing that. 
Paul is stating the truth about who he is in Christ and why that matters. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And therefore, I can run the race. I can fight the battle. I can live as God has called me to because Christ is mine and I am his. I guess my blood boiling. So I want you to practice a Christian affirmation. In fact, maybe it's better to say a meditation about who you are in Christ, if in fact you are. I'm going to go through this rapidly, so buckle your seatbelt. I want to look at the first part of verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. Chew on this then. Look, I am forgiven. You don't get wrath because you have been forgiven of your debt against God. The wrath that you are deserved has been eliminated removed as far as the east is from the west. You are now given access. And we'll get to that in a second. One of my favorite hymns, one of my favorite hymns, I return to this refrain often when I feel guilty. And let me just tell you, I feel guilty a lot. I have a tender conscience, I think, in a lot of ways, maybe not some in others, but there are times when I just feel like this inner sense of, ah, deliver me, Lord. I hate what I'm feeling right now. I don't want to feel this. Please, I'd rather die than, than feel what I'm feeling right now. And here's the words that God brings to my mind. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I don't have to carry the guilt. I don't have to carry my shame. I can let it go. I'm forgiven. Guilt and shame are defeated. Imposter syndrome. I feel like I'm I'm somebody else. And if if people really knew who I was, man, they wouldn't like me. If people really knew what I thought, they would abandon me because I would abandon me. Not God, not Jesus. Jesus keeps us even though he knows every single evil thought you've ever thought. Jesus loves us even so. I am forgiven. Christian, if this is you, this ought to be one of the most cherished things that's true about you. I am forgiven. Young person, if you're not a Christian, this is where it's at. To be forgiven of your sins. To have God's wrath assuaged, removed from you. I'm forgiven. Forgiven, praise God. Look, he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation, to obtain salvation. So I'm not only forgiven, but I'm justified. Look, I, I know that all these kind of, kind of blend together, but I'm trying to make a distinction here. He says, you're going to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has declared you righteous. Yeah, I sin every day. I sin in my thoughts. I sin in my feelings. I sin in my actions. But I am saved. I'm protected from the wrath of God because I have been declared righteous by Jesus Christ. What that means for me then is, look, I can take risks. I can do things that I know I might fail in because I'm immune from the wrath of God. I am protected by him. I have been justified. I've been declared righteous. And therefore, I can do stuff. I've got everything to gain and nothing to lose because I have been justified. Even the loss of my life is counted as gain, according to Paul. If I were to die serving Christ, that's gain. That's a win. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
These are the kind of things to say to yourself when you're battling guilt or shame or insufficiency, insecurity, whatever it is that's plaguing you, the Christian can affirm, I am forgiven and I am justified, not because of my righteousness, but because of who Jesus is. And because your hope is objectively anchored on Jesus and not on you, guess what? Your hope is secure. Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are alive or dead, awake or asleep, we might live with him. Salvation accomplishes not only our forgiveness and our justification, but our reconciliation. You see, salvation is not just a matter of cleansing you from wickedness and taking away your sin. That's part of it. But he does that because it's an obstacle between you and God. You were designed and made to be in relationship with God. You are happiest. You are best. You are your best self when you are in right relationship with God. And apart from that, you have nothing. You have anxiety, fear, and tumult because you're not living the way you should. Salvation grants us access to the throne room of God. Jesus' death atoned for my sin. So now I can approach the throne of grace and say, Lord, will you hear my prayer about this and that? And God will say, yes, I will hear your prayer. The God of the universe is willing to entertain my prayers because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' death provides atonement, at one mint, at one mint. He brings parties together, and that party is me and God, sinner and the Lord and Savior. Have you said this to yourself lately? Have you talked to yourself about these things? Last. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. All of these things coordinate together. Paul tells the church, look, guys, don't do, this, don't do this alone. Do it together as a church. Grow in your faith. Be sanctified in your faith in community. Building one another up. This is what he calls us to. I'm sanctified. I'm set apart. I'm one of the holy ones. But Paul often draws us back into how that holiness is meant to function in the context of one another's, which is why I'm so glad you guys are here tonight. Good job on you. One of my favorite quotes from Martin Lloyd-Jones is, have you realized that, you're, that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? People talk to themselves. They often think that they're homeless and crazy, but the Christian could do this in a way that's productive and valuable. Your inner dialogue can be wielded for good if you're going to take that dialogue and say, I'm going to make you use Christian words and Christian phrases. I'm going to squeeze Christian truth into my inner chatter so that it is overcome by the truth of God's word. One quick distinction. This is not manifesting. Okay? This is not manifestation. This is not you thinking positive thoughts and trying to law of attraction things to your world. This is not using the 369 technique to... Uh, as, as I said, write person's name three times, write intention six times, and then write what you want them to say to you nine times. Uh, what that sounds like is not Christianity, but witchcraft, sorcery, which if you want to know how God feels about that, you and I could talk later, but this is not manifestation. Manifestation is pagan, and it is foolish. It is earthly. It is carnal. It is contra-Christianity. Rather, going to the Lord and not the law of attraction, we beg him, we ask him to bless us, to keep us, to draw us near, and to make us more conform to the pattern and likeness of Christ. We always live in view of Jesus' return. And what that does for us 
is that it should give us a compassion for the lost. We pray for that. Always living in view of Jesus' return means that we're actively maintaining, trying to keep a wartime mentality, tightening our spiritual belt, so to speak, praying for people, fasting for people's salvation even. And to keep that very rigorous kind of life, we don't rely on our own strength or sheer willpower and discipline. We rely on what Jesus has promised to do in and through us. We're trusting even, we're trusting the gospel even in our sanctification. We're trusting Jesus to be enough and I am weak and unable, but if I lean on him, I can get through it. Even though the Christian life is vigorous, tough, even impossible. But with Christ, all things are possible. When we draw near to him, no matter how far the end is to us, whether it's close whether it's further away, we can be confident he will hold us fast. Let's pray.